Hello everyone, it's November 20th, 2023. This week we're doing a Starliner status update and refresher on the facts. It hasn't flown in over a year, so what's going on with it? Will it ever take its place alongside Crew Dragon? Well, things are looking better, so let's cross our fingers and get into the details and lift off. And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 436 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So we were talking about football in the state of Pennsylvania right just before the show, but that jogged my memory. Dennis, I know that you're a fan of, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Did you know that they made a pilot for a science fiction comedy show called Boldly Going Nowhere or something like that? It was a pun on Star Trek and the, the episode's available on YouTube and you can watch it. It's the weirdest thing. Anyway, that just popped into my head. So for any always sunny fans out there, check out this weird, uh, science fiction comedy pilot i guess it didn't make it past the pilot but uh yeah it was uh, written and produced by charlie day and i think all the guys in fact i think one of the guys from the show is in that show yeah rickety cricket david hornsby he's, he's i don't know who that people. is but <laughs> okay <laughs> that's that's wild yeah no i, I had zero idea about this B- boldly going nowhere yeah to be aired in 2009. So, geez, this is this is a while ago. Well, this show, for anyone who's interested, yeah, again, you can find it on YouTube. You should check it out. It's not bad, actually. Um, mm. I mean, it's pretty goofy, uh, which is kind of what, you know, I guess you can expect from a live-action science fiction comedy show. I feel like there's been a couple of those, and they're always really wacky and out there. I mean, like everything from Red Dwarf, I think, was a comedy, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think Red Dwarf was the first science fiction comedy ever, like, they were told over and over and over, you can't do this because these two things don't go together. I mean, they go together, but the catch is, is that it's going to be like really, again, just wacky. I don't know what other word to use. It's like almost, it's like really absurd type humor. There's just something about sci-fi and comedy, I guess, because they can both be kind of uh, fantastical in a way. And then you put them together and it just explodes and it just becomes this <laughs> kind of like Hitchhiker's Guide. You know, of course, that's mm. specifically mm-hmm. British humor. But I mean, that's a weird book. Um, a great book. Even better radio drama. But yeah, that's my uh, recommended viewing for this week. Heck Yeah. Starliner crew flight test stays on schedule. I guess this is like a weird news, non-news item, right? Like things remain on course. Is that kind of what we're saying here? But we have, I guess, a little bit of an update on exactly where we stand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I've written up sort of half a refresher, half of a, hey, this is uh, moving forward kind of thing. Uh, Mostly I kind of had forgotten what was up with Starliner? I mean, that's a good reason because I had kind of forgotten too. And then this kind of jogged my memory like, oh yeah, we have some issues with tape, which I'd totally forgotten about. <laughs> so we'll talk about that <laughs> Yeah, uh, and some other things. Yeah. So what's the current status as far as when it flies next? Yeah. April 14th is what they're looking for. Um, and this had been bumped back. I think the the original plan was July of last year, and then they discovered a couple issues, which I'll talk about, that wound up pushing them back uh, to March, or pushed them back to, I think, the end of last year, and then uh, in August of last year, they bumped it out further to March, and now it's sitting at April 14th, but they think that this is likely to be there. Uh, their last launch day. And it's the first time they've like said a, a day of the week, right? So it's April 14th yeah. with two backup dates on the 15th and the 18th. 
Um, so they think they're looking pretty good. And so if they can't get the 14th, I suppose we'll ask for an extension. It's a tax joke. Okay. Oh, oh yeah, sure. Okay. Here for it. So, uh, as a reminder, uh, orbital flight test two flew in May of 2022. And what's really interesting is that, uh, CFT, the crew flight test is going to be flown on spacecraft three known as Calypso. And that's the same vehicle that flew for the, uh, OFT one flight. Um, so the, the one where things went dramatically wrong, but like they, you know, it wasn't totally uncorrectable things. And then, like we said, there were some additional issues that came up after OFT two and luckily, you know, like OFT one is on the ground and they can get, I guess they're not going to get to work on it during the mission. Uh, but you know, that it's, they'd been already working on it and they were able to do some additional work once they figured these things out. So, um, the scheduling news comes from NASA's commercial spaceflight division director, Phil Callister. Um, and there was a, a NASA advisory council meeting, uh, this week for the human exploration operations committee. And, um, there was a lot of news that came out of it, actually. We'll talk about ISS during short and sweet, and that actually, some of that information uh, comes out of this meeting, too. The other big headline, other than the date, is that they are 98% done with the certification, like paperwork kind of stuff. And they've got a, a couple of issues that are still outstanding, but they, they've got most of these loose ends tied up. So, Moving on to the issues that cropped up after OFT2, and I think we talked about most or all of these. One thing was that I think they knew going into OFT2 that there was an issue with the parachute system. Um, basically, they had used the incorrect method of data collection when they were validating uh, the parachute soft links, also sometimes called the lanyards, um, which is part of the weight-bearing chain, right? So the capsule is attached to the risers and the risers are attached to the, what are they called? Like the lines, and the lines are attached to the parachutes and like every, every single piece in that chain has to participate in bearing the weight of the spacecraft uh, or the tension between gravity pulling the spacecraft down and the, the parachutes pulling the spacecraft up. And so one of those steps is the, is the, the soft link. And when they validated its load limitations, uh, they did so incorrectly or the vendor did so incorrectly. I don't remember which, but basically if one of the parachutes had failed, the amount of demand placed on the other two parachute systems, uh, goes up by 50%, right? And the soft links weren't properly validated up to that uh, weight. And it turns out that if one of the parachutes had failed, the other two might have snapped. Their their soft links might have just torn apart. Um, so they have redesigned the the soft links. I don't think I think they've tried to limit how much change they've done to the parachute system. Um, but they are going to go ahead and do a drop test that's scheduled for January uh, to finish proving out that new design. Then um, they published the parachute issue, I believe, like the day after, and then. Like a few days after that, they also had to come out and say, oh, actually, we've now found this other issue with um, flammable tape uh, used in the wiring harnesses inside the vehicle. So um, we talked a little bit about this uh, a while ago. It's called P213. It's a glass cloth tape, and it is 
uh, used in aerospace a lot. And it's really nice because it is a good protection against uh, abrasion type damage to your wires. And so, uh, I mean, it's even used on ISS. And normally we think about it as being non-flammable, but it turns out that there is a particular set of atmospheric conditions under which it becomes flammable or at least not (laughs) non-flammable. Like, I don't think it's, you know, instantaneously bursting into flame, but it, it can catch fire. And so that's normally not an issue, but there's a what I believe is a, a known failure mode that's part of the life support system. And like there's one error or there's one failure in a system that's not the wiring could cause the atmospheric uh, at oxygen content to rise. And apparently it can rise to the point where the P213 uh, does become flammable. Um, so in an ideal world, we would go and tear out all of the tape. But the problem is that the the cabling is so deeply embedded in the spacecraft that you would have to basically tear the spacecraft apart to go ahead and re- to pull off and replace this tape would require risking damage to other systems and so what they've done is the tape that they can remove they've removed and then there are two categories of not able to remove it. In one case, they were able to install a sleeve on top of it, a non-flammable like cloth sleeve that apparently they're happy as um, mitigating the risk. And then there's actually some cabling that they couldn't even put a sleeve on. And so that has been left in the vehicle and they are currently waiting on like the, the final confirmation stuff to decide that the risk of having that small amount of tape on board is acceptable. And I think that basically comes down to NASA's uh, calculators. So the the flammable tape harness work has all been done. We're just waiting for a little bit of paperwork on that. Then there was an issue with the radiator bypass valves. Um, they, they wound up sticking before OFT2. I think they, when they were like opening, closing them uh, on the ground before launch, they stuck it might have been a space, but I think it was it was on the ground. But anyway, the uh, the bypass valves have had their hardware modified in some way. Boeing also listed a few fixes that they're considering in the future, um, which involve you know just procedure changes all the way up to actually being able to not pull a vacuum but reduce the pressure inside um, the the radiator fluid lines to reduce um, the friction placed on those valves. I'm assuming they're like ball valves. And so if they're under pressure on one side, the ball gets pressed up against the far side of the casing or whatever. And so by reducing that pressure, you know, you, you let them turn a little more freely. Uh, They've got a, a, like, I think five different things that they might do in the future. And I don't know if those would ever be done to um, existing vehicles like Calypso, or if that's just for future vehicles that they're going to that they're going to build. So the, those are issues. They've also uh, completed all the work that needs to be done on the flight software for CFT. Um, they're going to go ahead and do uh, software hardware, like integration testing to make sure that it works in the real vehicle and not just on a computer. Um, and so that is pending or um, in progress. I guess it probably mostly depends on the, the day circled on the calendar, right? Can you remind me what the software issue was? Was just a thing where they had that uh, dead band issue? Well, that that was from OFT1. This isn't uh-huh. addressing a particular issue. It's just, you know, they're, they're updating 
the software iterating. And so like the, the dead band issue was solved for OFT2. Um, so this is just the next version of the of the software that they've been building. For listeners, just to recap that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the issue was that the dead band was too conser- uh, too strict, I suppose, and so it really, really wanted to point the spacecraft super accurately, and thus it blew through all its propellant too quickly before it was able to actually get to the station. Is that about right? Yeah, that's correct. The only thing is that the dead band was, I don't want to say it was properly set, but it wasn't the, the dead band's fault. It was not properly timed, right? Yeah, the, the vehicle thought that it was a different oh. time than it actually was. It thought that it was currently in the, the circularization burn, even when it wasn't. And right, so it was holding right. itself to a tighter standard because, you know, it was looking at the wrong the wrong part of the schedule. Okay, yeah, cool. really- thank you. I figured that'd be helpful then, you know, to reflect sure. on why it didn't make it to orbit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I mean, it made it to orbit. Uh, didn't make it to station. Didn't make it to station. There you go. Uh, OFT2 uh, back in May did make it to the station. And so the hope is that uh, CFT will also make it to the station. They are expecting to spend a minimum of eight days docked to ISS. And interestingly enough, they're actually going to be landing at White Sands again, right? Like this is the first crewed uh, U.S. vehicle to land on land and not in the ocean. Pretty cool. To that end, they actually already have the crew and service modules mated together. So like when we're talking about doing this software hardware integration testing, like they actually have everything ready to go. And, you know, they're they're doing all of this work and still marching towards, uh, towards launch. And then there, there was one other thing about the so they're first to land on land. They're also the first to launch from Cape Kennedy since Apollo rather than... Uh, Cape Canaveral? There we go. Cape Canaveral rather than the Kennedy Air Force Base. And so they're the first to launch since Apollo 7. So it must be a weird pad if it's the first la- crewed launch since Apollo 7. <laughs> yeah, it must be a s- slick 40 maybe? I believe it's 40. Yeah. It can't be one of the 39s by inference. Right. Yeah. Uh, 41. Yeah. And Atlas V from Slick 41 is where they're launching. And Space News has got a nice little, like, who are the neighbors kind of list. Axiom Space, the, the, the Axiom Space mission AX3, uh, is looking to potentially launch from Slick 40. That might happen as soon as January 10th. So they, they may not get this record. And then Intuitive Machines, uh, Lunar Lander is launching from 39A, which is kind of cool. So yeah, I, I hope that was that was quick enough or c- concise enough, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's Starliner coming up. I, I actually had a a question. I kind of missed a a, a a smooth way to uh, inject it into <laughs> the discuss the um, into your piece. But um, I was thinking about like obviously, right? You don't want the the tape to catch fire. That's, right. that's pretty obvious. <laughs> Avoid the fire in the first place. But if there were a fire, if there was a fire, I know shuttle had. Like fire extinguishing. I guarantee there's a fire extinguisher. And Apollo didn't. So okay, so you're you're certain that there would be some kind I mean, of fire suppression. I, I'm I'm not certain, but I would be willing to bet. Like I don't I don't think we fly vehicles without fire extinguishers. Like I'm pretty sure that I've seen uh the fire extinguisher on uh crew dragon. I think it's like in the bathroom compart it's like I don't know, it's like a little cabinet, right, that you open up and you've got access to the toilet. Um, I'm pretty sure it's in that cabinet. Like, I, I don't think I don't think we fly newly designed vehicles. I think Apollo is probably the last one to fly without a 
That makes that makes sense. But for this fire, right? This isn't a fire that would be in, in the cabin. This would be, you know, it between would. the inner and outer. Oh no, oh, it, it would, would be in the I, cabin. I thought it was. I thought we're talking about oxygen levels getting super high because uh, there was gas being trapped, you know, between in the service kind of part. Right. That would be that would be a, an oxygen leak, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like, and I thought that that was the danger. Is it like you know, yeah. like had there or like if there was a leak and it caught fire, then it would be really bad because you have highly flammable tape in there. Yeah. I mean, I that that would really suck, but no. This is all in the the crew compartment. Yeah, and the the issue isn't isn't a leak of oxygen that they're worried about. It's it's the oxygen levels rising in the cabin. I, I don't know what the issue is, um, but I I suspect it's like um, a fail safe mode, where like instead of requiring you know oxygen bottles to be brought out or something, if it can't contain it properly, it it you know dumps a little. It errs on the side of caution and dumps a little extra oxygen in. I don't, I don't know if it's intentional, if it's just an accepted feature of the system or, or what. So like, we're not even talking about like super high levels of oxygen, just like a little bit above normal. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how high it has to get, but even if it's, you know, verging on dangerous levels, like you would still rather have one problem than two. So I don't think it really matters that much. So Dennis, you looked it up. How how did I do remembering Crew Dragon's fire extinguisher? You did a bang up job. Oh, it's I mean it's kind of on the opposite side of the toilet though. If the toilet's on the top, the fire extinguisher is on the bottom. But I mean at least it's the, the right the right part or the right side of the ship. <laughs> it's close. It's close. It's close to some of the toilet's piping. So I'll still sure. Give it to you. <laughs> sure, thank you. I'll take it. I'll take it. It'd be really interesting. I mean, if somebody wants to put together a list of crewed vehicles uh, from Apollo onward, I mean, if you can go all the way back to uh, Mercury and what was the first Russian crewed vehicle? Uh, Vostok. Vostok. Yeah. I mean, like if you can do every crude vehicle, if somebody wants to put that together and then like document the fire suppression systems, I think that'd be really cool. We would totally take a moment to talk about that. All right, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Ben, what's the first? Right, first, looking towards the end of ISS. NASA's request for proposal due date has now passed for the USD orbit vehicle. The USDV may be a new vehicle or a modified version of an existing vehicle, but progress isn't powerful enough to deorbit ISS in a controlled manner. Whether new or not, NASA wants something reliable to deorbit the 400,000 plus kilogram ISS, as a partial burn could be catastrophic. A contract award is expected in April. This week, the director of NASA's Commercial Space Division indicated that a commercial replacement for ISS may well not be ready soon enough to avoid a gap in sustained American presence in space, even though a two-year overlap is currently planned. One gap filler method would be extended missions on Dragon and Starliner, but stations deorbit could also be put off as an alternative. This means that ISS's best hope for continuing past the planned 2030 deorbit date may be scheduled delays in commercial LEO destinations. And then next up, Orion's still on track. Despite unexpected erosion to its heat shield during the Artemis 1 mission last December, the Orion spacecraft is still unscheduled for Artemis 2 in December of 2024. However, NASA is not ignoring the issue of higher rates of erosion to the AVCO ablative material that protects the capsule. Finding a root cause for this anomaly is still a priority, and if necessary, the Artemis 2 mission will be postponed, though there has been no word given on what delays can be expected if this happens. And finally, Ariane 6 hot firing test complete. After a seven-week delay due to an anomaly in the Ariane 6's attitude control system, ESA has successfully performed a full-duration hot-fire test of the rocket's core stage. 
Intended to simulate the first stage of flight, the test was supposed to last 470 seconds, but the Vulcan 2.1 engine cut off at 426 seconds. Despite the shortfall, Kness, Issa, and Ariane Group have all said that the hot firing was successful. This milestone leaves only one more before the vehicle's first flight, a hot fire test of the Ariane 6's second stage. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and um, maybe some art recommendations. Uh, ben, do you have anything? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's all art recommendations this week, actually. Uh, it's our cre- questions, comments, correction burns, and creative corner. Um, so <laughs> nice. I, I ran across an artist on Macedon, uh, Danielle Rose Baker, and I clicked into, they've got a store listed, and um, I clicked in, and I was like, oh, cool, like space art. Like, this is cool. It's it's really lovely because there's, you know, some whimsical stuff, but there's also some just like straight reproductions of like actual space photos and things. Um, and it's mostly, it looks like watercolor and pastels and it's really pretty. And even though it's, you know, like a, a painting of an actual picture, it's still artistically interesting and they look good. And it's, you know, not just poorly rendered spacecraft in front of colorful nebulas, which like kind of annoys me, like <laughs> just as a as a theme in art. Um, hmm. Dennis, you really liked the dart hitting the the man on the moon. And like, I, yeah. I really liked um, the Art Nouveau uh, starship. Like, I, I don't know. It's just really, really good art. Some good subject selection here. So. I thought I'd give them a shout out. So the, uh, the, again, this is uh, Danielle Rose Baker, uh, many faceted at mastodon.social, mstdn.social. Uh, and there'll be a link in the show notes um, to Mastodon and to uh, their sale page, which is a custom domain, drose.studio, which is really nice. And like, yeah, go go check them out. Buy smart. And thanks to Lee on our Discord for... Uh bringing to our attention that Jared Owen has a new video out. This is a wonderful YouTube channel. Strong recommendation. They do these uh, 3D animations and renderings in wonderful detail of not just space stuff uh, where they've covered uh, the shuttle, they've covered Crew Dragon, they've covered Soyuz, both the rocket and the spacecraft, but also things like like how does Big Ben work or like how is the layout of the White House uh, things like that, just really, really interesting. These wonderful. Or how does a bowling uh, a bowling pin resetter machine work? Oh, yeah, so that good. was a good one. That was such a good yeah. one too. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Absolute uh, nerd snipe kind of stuff. I watch every single video. And 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 so yeah, so uh, there's a new one out on the ISS construction, and so uh, that's a strong uh, recommendation. And uh, not only will you enjoy it, but then you'll also know what a Canadian handshake means um, upon uh, completion of watching that video. And uh, and 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 part of it too, uh, they, they focus on um, the actual procedures of how uh, a number of the modules uh, during particular missions um, were built. Uh, and so, coming up uh, on December sixth, um, one of the missions that was featured in Jared Owen's uh, 
video was STS-88, which was when uh, Zarya and Unity, the first time the, the space station consisted of more than one module, right? The real core of it. Uh, that is That was 25 uh, years ago, uh, uh, next week. <laughs> and so um, uh, NASA TV is going to be having a, a thing that you can watch where they're going to have the uh, original crew, uh, all seven crew members there, uh, cool. which includes uh, Bob Cabana, who's the uh, associate administrator of NASA, although he's now stepping down, uh, retiring. Uh, from that position, um, but also the ISS program manager, Joel Montalbano, will be there as well. So it uh, should be cool to watch. And uh, yeah, but one way or another, you've got to check out that Jared Owen video. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If anybody knows Jared Owen or Jared, if you're listening, which would be kind of crazy, let him know <laughs> <laughs> that um, just totally skipping over uh, animations of how CBM uh, and all the other, you know, APAS, like all the documents, how they actually work is nigh unforgivable, but I'm willing to spend some time to help you make those animations and explain how docking modules work, because that would just be incredibly delightful uh, to have on the channel. Um, maybe maybe that's pushing the channel too far in the space direction, but like, <laughs> I, I was kind of bummed when uh, there wasn't even like a quick like highlight like blue highlighted parts uh, cutaway or something. I was like, I was waiting for the cutaway and it didn't come. So we, we, we can help you fix that. So Ben, ben just your own nefarious purposes is going to be a JWST actuator uh, video is going to be your next request. I imagine. Oh, break it. Breaking taps already, already scratched that itch, man. That was perfect. I mean, he, he built it. So it's kind of like, yeah, <laughs> I guess that did cover it, but you know, yeah. you could have all, uh, what all seven, eight of them, six of them going at the same time. You can <laughs> like with, with animation, you could expand on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean like, you know, to, sh to show how the platform wobbles around yeah totally so let's move along then to this week in space Life history we have uh some winners we have fungi and then we also have some other winners who also get the bonus points the greek Cy Kyle, uncle willie and chris s so congratulations to everyone uh the clue was every journey of a million kilometers starts with a couple meters and uh this clue seemed like i mean i could tell it referred to some specific spacecraft I wasn't sure what, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, so what is this specific spacecraft, Dennis? Yeah, so the this event specifically was uh, the 3rd of December 2015, and it was the launch of Lisa Pathfinder. And I got to admit, the, uh, everyone that got the uh, the bonus points, um, they basically improved the clue than over what I had done. I should have uh, instead <laughs> changed it to every journey of millions of kilometers starts with uh, a couple centimeters, if I want it to be more accurate, rather than a couple meters. But we'll see what I mean by that in a little bit. So uh, to talk about Lisa Pathfinder, you got to talk about Gravitational Waves 101, because as its name implies, this was a Pathfinder mission. It was only uh, designed to do uh, essentially a demonstration of a very particular component of what it would take for a proper gravitational wave um, measuring spacecraft uh uh, to be able to do gravitational waves, right, which are not gravity waves, right? These are ripples in space-time itself, uh, predicted by Einstein in relativity going back in the day. Um, indirectly measured in the early 2000s when we discovered a, a, a pair of pulsars orbiting around each other, and their period was decaying exactly as you would expect if they were emitting gravitational waves. But we didn't actually directly detect them until 2015 with LIGO, um, which is right the ground-based. Uh, uh, observatory, which has, you know, these two L-shaped 
arms, right? So there's one uh, sitting in Washington state and there's one sitting in Louisiana and you basically bounce the lasers down the two arms and they, you know, combine uh, at the, uh, where the L, the two arms meet each other in the L. And uh, since they are designed to be, you know, the same distances, they should, you know, have a perfect kind of interference and interferometry, right? That's why it's like the gold standard for measuring distances between things is any kind of difference in that path length is going to show up uh, in the interference pattern uh, when they recombine. And so that's how you can make these kind of high uh, precision measurements doing that sort of thing. So if, you know, in principle, you know, if a gravitational wave comes by and it distorts the space-time and thus the distance between um, the, the paths of these arms, then you end up having that you know, you see that distortion. And if you see it happening in both of these locations, as well as now there's actually, they don't get enough uh, attention, but there's also um, uh, smaller ones in, uh, in in Italy and Japan that also contribute to this kind of global network of uh, gravitational wave searching interferometers. Uh, then you know that you've got a wave that passed through. And we've discovered a bunch, you know, since that uh, initial one, um, you know, black hole, black hole mergers uh, mostly, but we even got some uh, neutron stars involved as well, which is pretty cool. So an issue is, is when you're that sensitive, like, you know, in Louisiana, like the, the, the water in the Gulf of Mexico lapping against the shore, you know, tractor trailers driving down the highway, you're sensitive to a lot of things. And so ideally, you'd like to do this sort of thing, but do it in space. Because not only can you try to isolate yourself from any kind of mechanical vibrations and seismic activity and things like that, but you also can build your the arms of these, which the longer they are, the more sensitive you'll be, you could make it much larger because, right, you can't make it any bigger than roughly the surface of the earth if you're talking about building ground-based <laughs> interferometers on the surface of the earth. Uh, so when you have an earth-based interferometer and you've got trucks going past and screwing up your measurements, it's not that it's the gravity of the truck, the, the mass of the trucks forming gravity waves, is that you can't tell the difference between the actual length of your instrument changing versus the length of your instrument changing due to gravitational distortions, right? It's like, it's the mechanical vibrations looking the same as actual distortions from space time yes, moving. Thank you. I was, I guess, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't very clear about that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's, it's right. Not, that, was, that was my question is like, so it's, it's actually oh, the thing moving, right? Exactly. Yeah. There, it's, it's just jitter, right? You, you stand near this thing and that like, you know, you might think the vibrations like, like, so the water, uh, the waves lapping against the Gulf of Mexico, right? The shore, you might think that those kind of vibrations are so minute that you couldn't pick it up. But when you're trying to make such an exquisitely precise distance yeah. determination where you've got these these lasers that are going, you know, multiple kilometers uh, to bounce off these mirrors and return, and they need to be able to measure the the precision of the position of those mirrors to like within a fraction of an atom. It's it's really incredible. Like they have to like treat these. I remember one person commenting that they have to treat these macroscopic objects as though they're quantum um, mm. objects because of just the level of precision wow. that they need. And so exactly that's why it's it's mechanical noise um, that's just happening from the fact that you do not have a perfectly still Earth, no matter how much you try to isolate you know any kind of vibrations um, from you know disturbing these masses at all. Good point. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for clarifying. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I wasn't 100% sure that I was right. So thank you. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Technically, anything with mass will emit uh, gravitational waves, but I mean, not repeating so waves in the same way. 
And it's, I mean, it's just so insensitive to, you know, uh, a truck or a yeah. human or the, pl- the motion of the planets in the solar system. Those gravitational waves are going to be way too faint. You need yeah. neutron stars, compact objects that are merging with each other, um, not even just freely moving through space, but actually going through these uh, high intensity mergers. So, yeah. Yeah. And so that's, yeah. So, so LISA uh, is, is an acronym um, for LISA Pathfinder, and that stands for uh, Laser Interferometry uh, Space Antenna. So, so LISA would be a space-based version of LIGO, essentially, where rather than having, you know, your the arms of these, the arms that you're bouncing the laser uh, along, uh, you can go much longer than the kilometers that ground-based ones are in length, and you can have it be, you know, millions of kilometers and have different spacecraft flying in formation. And so that's where the kind of testing, uh, these uh, this Pathfinder is testing some technologies that you would need in order to have LISA actually uh, work. And so how do you do this? Well, the spacecraft, LISA Pathfinder itself, uh, it was first proposed in 1998 and it was going to test some, uh, some of the key technologies. In particular, how precise can you hold your the two mirrors relative to each other? Um, since, like I said, that's very important for ground-based uh, laser interferometry, for detecting gravitational waves, and so it's going to be very important for space-based as well. And while you're in a more isolated environment, um, you on the other hand, <laughs> it's space. It's it's tricky, and there's new challenges that crop up when you're there. And so that was, yeah, that, that was kind of the key thing that would be tested. And so it was first proposed in 1998, and a couple years later, um, and this is ESA, the European Space Agency, coming up with this idea, uh, had proposed a version as well that would involve two spacecraft where they wanted to do uh, multiple tech demos at the same time. And the other one was this uh, uh, collection of space uh, telescopes that ultimately got canceled called uh, Darwin, and it was going to be looking at exoplanets. Uh, and so you're going to test, you know, formation flying as well as how kind of steady can you keep, you know, these mirrors um, at the same time. But they descoped it ultimately and got rid of uh, Darwin. That whole thing has been canceled and ultimately came to the final variant, which ended up flying, which was a single spacecraft uh, that cost ultimately uh, about 400 million euros. And so, yeah, in 2015 is when it was launched. Now, uh, earlier... Uh, uh, geodesic uh, measuring spacecraft have flown before, and so I just needed to give a shout out to that. Where, where geodesic measuring just means like you know the 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 masses what you're interested in are just in free fall. They're they're just following the gravitational uh, path uh, among them. Uh, you can ignore any kind of non gravitational effects, or you can try to isolate non gravitational effects, things like you know uh, pressure from the solar wind and things like that. Any kind of charges on it causing gravity, uh, electromagnetic attraction um, within the spacecraft itself. And so uh, two of those included Gravity Probe B, which Ben, I believe you had talked about as a TWISIF one time, and yep, David uh, Gochi, or Goche, which you had talked about, if I remember correctly. That was the one that had the weird fans and all that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly what it did because there was some there was some interesting thing that we were talking about because it um was looking at ocean currents and I want to say yeah it measured the Earth's geoid or something like that I think is what it was doing. Mm. I do remember talking more about the fact that it um yeah that it that it had to stay at very low like at a very low altitude which is why it has that very aerodynamic look because yeah. because it was kind of like moving through the atmosphere and it it did have continual thrust uh. 
by means of a uh, like a Hall Effect thruster or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it kind of had to be as close to the surface as possible. That's what I remember. So yeah, yeah, more than anything. Velio, they call it very low Earth orbit. Yeah, so I just wanted to give a shout out to you guys uh, for those two previous uh, twisifs. So yeah, so Lisa Pathfinder. It consisted of two. Uh, I don't know if the words modules, but it kind of had it had two uh, systems that were being tested essentially. And uh, the first was called the uh, Lisa Technology Package. Actually, I, I, I should clarify. It, it has a few different systems. Um, there's there's kind of one that's always being tested in the background, I suppose. And then there's two separate systems to test, to basically uh, control the spacecraft. Uh, uh, there's two separate uh, systems. But uh, in any event, I guess the real heart of it is, you know, the lasers and the actual uh, mirrors uh, themselves. And so this was part of the LISA technology package, or LTP. And so this is what this is, you know, what ESA developed. Uh, it, it, it involved uh, basically uh, a, a pair of uh, 46 millimeter or 1.96 kilogram gold platinum cubes that were separated uh, 35 or 38 centimeters apart from each other, depending on what source you're looking at. Um, and so that's where I said that the improvement uh, of this could be a little uh, better, because here you're bouncing the laser. Uh, where they're separated by, uh, you know, just shy of 40 centimeters. And then that gets uh, extended to uh, basically having Lisa eventually flying with the lasers traveling over many uh, millions of kilometers of space. And so deep within the heart of the spacecraft, you've got these kind of two chambers. And within those chambers are the cubes. And the cubes, uh, you know, have a very reflective surface. And so they serve as the mirrors themselves. And then there's an optical bench in between them, which is where you're essentially doing your uh, optical uh, interferometry, bouncing your lasers back and forth uh, between the two. And uh, actually, there there was a number of, uh, there were actually four interferometers, kind of two control ones, and then one that measured the distance between the two masses, and one that measured it between one of the masses and the spacecraft itself. And so uh, by doing that, uh, you were able to get to uh, nanometer uh, precision, uh, between the spacecraft and uh, the test mass, and then uh, picometer precision for the the distance between the two test masses themselves. Where picometer is, we're talking a trillionth of a meter, so quite good, even better than a nanometer, which is a billionth. So it, it kind of was a tricky situation. You wanted these uh, these two uh, mirrors, these two cubes, uh, to be in free fall, right? And we'll see that. Uh, uh, Lisa Pathfinder was put in a uh, uh, Earth-Sun L1 uh, orbit. So this is, you know, very far from, you know, uh, it's not close to any large massive object. And so it's and it's in free fall uh, around the sun, although it's, you know, I guess it's balanced um, if it's at L1 between the Earth and the sun in, a, in, in its uh, halo orbit there. You had to do a lot of things to, like, uh, really try to, you know, control uh, these cubes. And so it had a charge management system. So if any uh, electric charge was building up on them, uh, due to cosmic ray hits, that these uh, UV lamps would basically try to damp that out. Um, apparently, one of the trickiest things uh, for them to design and implement was a caging mechanism, because at one point you have to hold these cubes securely in their little cavities during launch, when there's going to be a lot of vibrations and all that stuff. But then they need to be released once you're on orbit, and in particular, I guess, uh, I'm not sure exactly when they release them, but in any event, once you, you know, 
were done with that, probably once they got to L1, they needed to be released within 60 microns of the correct position, uh, their intended position, nominal position, so I guess towards the center of this cavity. And then when they're released, to not impart any more than five microns per second of uh, speed to them, which is the equivalent of 18 uh, millimeters per hour, which is it's intense <laughs> yeah it's, Those it's, are some it's it's crazy requirements yeah right very, very strict uh, that they uh requirements that they had to meet but uh, as we'll see they uh they pulled it off they did a really great job engineering this and and interestingly enough the i mean we're talking about a level of precision where the 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 test mass chambers need to be better than just the vacuum would be otherwise and so they used uh, what are called getter pumps have you guys ever heard of a getter pump? This was a new term for me, a new type of pump. Nope. I've never heard of the term, but I think I think I know what kind of pump it is. So it's yeah, so it's spelled getter like G-E-T-T-E-R. And from my kind of quickly looking at it, it sounds like the idea is that it just goes and gets any kind of loose uh, molecules or atoms or particles that are kind of floating around in your vacuum that still are going to be there. And so evidently it, it just involves having a reactive surface that just absorbs uh, or, you know, it, any kind of loose particles will adhere to it and thus be taken out of the, you know, the vacuum state itself. Yeah, it's it's the silicon vacuum or it's the silicon packet of the vacuum world. Or the vacuum Ooh, I like that. World. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so basically when you're pumping the chamber, I mean, is that just one stage, like the final stage in the, you know, evacuation process? Because it seems like you could use a conventional pump, but then to get those remaining little molecules, it's very difficult, right? So you have mm-hmm. to have something that I guess... Once a collision happens, it sticks. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's always it's yeah it's always removing and and I think it seems to be good for um, you know acting as a pump over time, right? Because there's going to be some kind of you know I'm sure outgassing from materials, even though they tried to pick you know very stable things like the you know gold and platinum or, for example, or even leaks, you know, any leaks, yeah, anything like that. And so if any any new particles do sort of enter the chamber, hopefully the the getter pump would be able to remove them soon enough. Because David, I think you put it in a really good way. It it sticks because one of the really tough things about pulling a, a very pure vacuum is the gas molecules just aren't hitting each other anymore and so yeah <laughs> uh, you, you know you can't you can't rely on them to force each other out of a vacuum chamber. And then once you get really really low any molecule of gas that enters whatever sort of evacuation system you have, let's say you have like uh, a revolving door for gas molecules, you have a really good chance of that molecule just bouncing right back out of whatever surface you have uh, that the molecule is going to encounter. It just, it can bounce right out and there's nothing to stop it. And so, yeah, using, uh, you know, basically um, something sticky is, is like, the only thing you can do. And yeah, it's going to be really slow. It's not actually pumping anything anywhere, but if you can trap it, that's good enough. Micros- microscopic uh, flypaper. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or for the you know spacey people that are and engineers uh, listening, right? The uh, like at the entrance, the clean rooms, and not even in clean rooms, just in the entrance in a lot of like workshops where you got that kind of sticky uh, stuff on the floor that you step on to kind of keep you from tracking as much stuff into the lab or, you know, the place. Okay. So that was a lot of uh, the Lisa technology package, kind of uh, not just isolating these uh, these cubes, but also, you know, making sure that they're in a controlled environment. But at the end of the day, right, as, as the spacecraft is in free fall, you kind of want 
the cubes to be moving on you know their proper orbit and then you want to maneuver the spacecraft around them so that you know they're held towards the middle and that's kind of the whole name of the game that's the main thing to test is how how much can you control the spacecraft so that you can keep these cubes uh, within the spacecraft lined up perfectly where you want them to. And so since they're on different orbits, technically, right, uh, they, you can't actually center both of them precisely uh, just by maneuvering the spacecraft. Eventually, they'll start to drift. And so uh, one of them was actually held in place uh, by an electrostatic suspension system. But the, uh, the, the other one was the one that uh, you wanted to keep your spacecraft around. And so that's where you now had two uh, micro-propulsion micro subsystems um, that were both designed just to see and test in different ways, you know, how good are each of these systems at keeping these cubes centered where they're supposed to be. And so to give you a sense of uh, how much work uh, these propulsion systems would have to do, uh, you wanted uh, ultimately to have accelerations less than 10 to the minus 14 meters per second squared. Okay, so 10 to the minus 14, that's a uh, hundredth of a trillionth of a meter per second squared. So we're talking very small accelerations. Solar pressure at that distance alone would be 10 to the minus eight meters per second squared. So we're talking about a factor of a million difference. Yeah, I got to do a factor of a million better than, you know, solar pressure. Uh, is, or solar pressure is going to mess you up by a factor of a million based on what you want. Essentially, uh, the, the first of these, one was designed by ESA, uh, these systems, and one was designed by NASA. And the ESA one was called the Drag-Free Attitude Control System. And that one had cold gas nitrogen thrusters uh, that could basically give you anywhere from uh, one micronewton to 100 micronewtons. And uh, they basically uh, uh, replaced a fancier uh, uh, field effect electric propulsion subsystem or FEEPS uh, that they were going to have originally because it wasn't ready in time. And so they used cold gas thrusters for this, which I, I, I guess, you know, I'm kind of surprised. They always seem a little kind of blunt to me, but I guess for uh, precise, uh, you know, measurements, you just kind of squirt out <laughs> very, uh, uh, they're very simple. So I guess you can control uh, the thrust very accurately in, in that regard. And so, yeah, so that was uh, what ESA was doing. And they would test, uh, you know, this drag-free uh, attitude control system and see how well a job they can do keeping the cube uh, where they wanted it to be. And then NASA came up with, of course, you know, the fancier uh, propulsion system called the Disturbance Reduction System. And uh, this one was two clusters of uh, colloidal thrusters. So in other words, you had these small charged droplets uh, that you were accelerating via an electric field to get your propulsion that way. Um, there were eight of them in all uh, in these two clusters, so I assume there's four per cluster, uh, built by Busek, uh, who we talk about sometimes when it comes to building uh, small uh, thrusters on spacecraft. They show up a lot. And uh, these, uh, you know, would get you a max thrust of 30 micronewtons. Uh, but at the end of the day, you had this control loop uh, that was talking to the sensors that were measuring the distance between the cubes and their relative velocities and having the you know propulsion system kind of keep you uh, uh, controlled and where you want it to be. And so, yeah. So like I said, uh, this uh, spacecraft was launched uh, to L1, the Earth-Sun L1. Uh, it was launched on a Vega rocket. Uh, VV-06 was the mission. And so it was actually an early Vega flight. And to get out there, uh, they had to have a, an expendable propulsion module, a whole extra kind of propulsion system 
that would then, you know, after six uh, orbit raising burns, send the spacecraft out to L1 and then, of course, break away because, you know, you, you want this very high precision, you know, control over your spacecraft. And so the propulsion module, you definitely don't want it still attached. Uh, that would be the, the whole mission would have failed if they couldn't, you know, separate. And so, but that all worked well. Um, it, you know, this launch, uh, again, was, you know, this week in spaceflight history. So uh, it took uh, until uh, January 22nd of 2016 uh, to actually get to the L1. And uh, yeah, the way they did it was they do 90 days of testing the one system and then 90 days of testing the other uh, propulsion system. At the end of the day, the results were... They did a great job, both of them. <laughs> uh, in fact, they uh, were able to basically keep the test mass positions uh, to better uh, uh, than mission requirements by a factor of five. So yeah, so they did a really good job and showed that you can, in fact, control uh, the position of a mass that you're using as your mirror as part of a laser interferometer. So you can imagine now... Uh, hopefully sometime in the 2030s, launching three spacecraft, separating them by millions of kilometers, and uh, basically having them kind of form a triangle where you bounce the lasers against each other. And if they can each control uh, the position of you know their particular mass, it would be the same kind of thing, gold platinum masses acting as the mirrors in this laser system. And yeah, and you could control them accurately and then be able to measure those arm lengths uh, between each side of the triangle and maybe detect uh, gravitational waves that you wouldn't be sensitive to uh, for Earth-based uh, interferometers. And so, yeah, uh, that's kind of the future of LISA itself. Um, it hopefully will launch uh, in the next decade. And uh, uh, I thought it was pretty cool, too, that uh, this right, this happened in 2015. Uh, China, and we must have covered this on the show as a, you know, a, a launch, uh, but uh, China had launched the uh, Taiji-1 spacecraft, which is essentially the LISA Pathfinder for its Taiji mission, which would be, you know, in the future, it's also a LISA-type orbital interferometer with huge arm lengths between uh, the uh, the mirrors. Anyway, uh, a cool mission. A recent one, I remember, I feel like you commented, Ben, how <laughs> 2015 was not that long ago, but uh, yeah, only eight years. Yeah, we, we talked to the PI, uh, Paul McNamara, and that, I remember that being one of the first like big interviews that, that we had done, and I was like very excited to do it. So this Lisa Pathfinder has a near and dear spot. So your clue was every journey of millions of kilometers starts with a couple meters. What was the couple meters? So when I said couple meters, my brain went to the spacecraft itself was about two meters in size, in length. Okay. Now, the size of the yeah, spacecraft. It, yeah. And, and, but, but the people right, getting the bonus points, uh, they, they did a good job. And like I said, they could have, I could have improved the clue by not making it the, the scale of the spacecraft, but the scale, the distance between the uh, the, the the cubes, the mirrors. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I should have said, instead of a couple of meters, I should have said uh, uh, dozens of centimeters or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to rewind us back a little bit to the caging mechanism that you mentioned, because you said the word mechanism and then had no explanation after that. And I, I can't move on. <laughs> I need to know. And uh, I found a, a paper, uh, it'll be, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. And it is incredibly simple. There are, uh, I believe, eight fingers. It looks like there's two on the, uh, four on the top, four on the bottom, pressing on the corners of the test mass, right? It's just cube. And there are photos of the actual fingers. And uh, they, 
they look like steel, um, but they have a little button at the top that actually touches the test mass. And those fingers actually have strain gauges in them so that they can tell how hard they're pressing on the test mass um, when they're loading everything up on the ground because the, the fingers are pre-tensioned with springs um, and those springs hold everything in tension during the launch. Uh, that's like the clamping force. And then once they're in space, the fingers are retracted simply with a two segment linkage. So if you think about if the fingers are connected on sort of a Y shaped yoke where all the fingers come together to one, one shaft that sticks out, you can basically just pull that shaft back and all the fingers retract from the test mass. Well, instead of just pulling it backwards, the way that they um, actually do that motion is that pillar has got like a kink in it almost. And so it's three hinges. And the farther you pull the middle point of that kink out, the closer the other two hinges get together, right? I mean, it's just a triangle. So it's this uh, two segment linkage uh, with a spiral cam to actuate it, to move that center hinge back and forth. And like, that's all it comes down to just super, super simple. It really just comes down to the engineering and the the machining prowess to be able to make these things very, very precise um, so that you can take the relatively high speeds of an electric motor and slow everything down to very precisely back these fingers away from the test mass uh, in a very controlled and smooth manner so you don't disturb it. But the, the PDF in the show notes has got really, really good diagrams that do a, a fantastic job of explaining even why the spiral cam is important uh, rather than just like a wheel. Um, it's, it's very cool. Um, and some really good photos and renders of the mechanisms in question. Yeah, thank you, Ben. I'd say the these diagrams, even I can wrap my brain around them right. and what they're doing. <laughs> That's how you know a good paper. That's yeah. how you know a good paper is when you can understand it. Well, in any event, uh, they were released uh, uh successfully without imparting too much velocity and releasing them at the correct uh, position. And the test went great. Like I said, the accuracy was uh, great and uh, beat, uh, beat the mission uh, requirements. And yeah, and hopefully uh, this will be uh, something that pays off in the future through Lisa. And so yeah. uh, that was, yeah, that was this week in spaceflight history. Very good. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, that was a good one. Uh, so next week is going to be the 5th through the 11th of December. David, do you have a clue for us? Yeah. The clue is for uh, next week in 1966. It helped make our world possible. And I know that sounds like a very vague clue, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Okay. All right. So if you have a guess as to what this not vague clue is referencing, email us at info at the orbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon. Use the hashtag thisweeksf or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash discord to get an invite to our discord server and you can send your guest to our Tombot. And good luck. Good luck. Okay, so let's do upcoming spaceflight events. We got uh, four of those this week. And thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. Ben, what's the first launch? Right, so first up is 425 Project Flight 1 and another very cool satellite. So this is the first of a fleet of five reconnaissance satellites for the South Korean Defense Acquisition Program Administration. That's DAPA, not DARPA. Um, and these spy satellites 
are sort of a fleet. This one is electro-optical infrared. The other ones, I guess, are just synthetic apertures, so kind of a complementary fleet there. Um, and then the other thing that's flying is really cool. It's IRSAT-1. So this is Ireland's first satellite, and the name uh, E-I-R-S-A-T stands for Educational Irish Research Satellite, um, and it was constructed by a team of students at University College Dublin, and they've got a, a pretty nice looking website, and their their sponsors include Rialtra, who we talked to. So pretty cool. It's, it's neat to see this one flying uh, at long last. And so this launch is going to be happening out of Vandenberg on Wednesday, November 29th, between 1804 hours UTC and 1918 hours UTC. And then next up, we have a Soyuz 21A that will be taking a resupply mission to uh, the ISS. Uh, so this is Progress MS-25 or by the uh, American Reckoning Progress 86P. And so, uh, yeah, it's a resupply mission, and it will be, and it has a uh, instantaneous uh, launch window on Friday, December 1st at 0925 ETC, and it'll be launching out of Baikonur. Now, uh, you can watch this on NASA TV, where uh, coverage will begin um, at uh, 4 a.m. Eastern, so, uh, yeah, uh, maybe a little tricky, uh, but in any event, um, the launch itself is scheduled at 425 a.m. Eastern. Now, a couple days later, on Sunday, December 3rd, it'll finally have made its way to uh, the ISS itself. And so NASA TV also has, at 5.30 a.m. Eastern, uh, coverage of the rendezvous and uh, docking, with the docking scheduled at 6.14 a.m. And then after that, on December 2nd, uh, you guessed it, we have a Starlink launch. Uh, so this is Starlink Group 631, uh, Falcon 9 Block 5. That is launching at 0400 UTC, or with a launch window of 0400 UTC through 0800. So big launch window launching from Slick 40 at the Cape. Uh, and then finally, uh, this is based on a NOTAM, so we're not 100% sure what the payload is. Um, but we do know what the launch vehicle is. So the reason we know what the vehicle is uh, with only a NOTAM is because it's launching out at sea, which kind of limits our options. Uh, so this is a Smart Dragon 3 uh, launch vehicle. Um, I don't know why it's called Smart Dragon in English, because it would be better to translate it Agile Dragon or Fast Dragon, maybe. But we we don't know what the what the payload is. It might be uh, a Hong Kong Space Link satellite, um, but uh, who, who knows? This is going to be launching on Tuesday, December 5th, between 1917 hours and 2002 hours UTC. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, which means it's time to enjoy the show, and we'd like to thank Ron Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mr. Cesium, Mike, Chris S., Colin, The Greek, Ryan R., Cy Kyle, and Leon Running Man for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen, and you can visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.